Hey, it's Lynn Galadner, and this is the Make Meaning Podcast. I am a writer and an entrepreneur, and through decades of writing articles for magazines and newspapers and authoring books, I've wondered what makes life meaningful and what makes work worth doing. In my day job, I help schools and universities, entrepreneurs and leaders learn how to market and grow their reach. You can learn more about my company, Your People, at yourppl.com. I also am a writing coach, and I teach my signature Find Your Voice Writers Workshop, through writingworkshops.com and at makemeaning.org. I help people, organizations, and movements find their voice and gain the confidence to use it. Because everything we do means something. Why waste your moments? You are needed. You can make the world better. And by caring about the people you encounter and the tasks you take on, you get closer every day to finding your unique meaning and living life with purpose. This podcast focuses on all the many ways people make meaning in the mundane. You'll hear stories of courageous people daring to imagine a life they love. If you like what you hear, give us a review on any of the podcast platforms you find this show. There are many ways to fill your life with meaning. Join us at makemeaning.org to learn more. Now, on to the show. Imagine learning that your 86-year-old father tried to end his own life. That is the event that inspired Karen Baum Gordon's memoir, The Last Letter, A Father's Struggle, A Daughter's Quest, and The Long Shadow of the Holocaust. Karen's father survived one of the greatest atrocities of human history, but the scars of what he endured never left him. In this brave book, Karen looks back at generations of her family and grapples with the psychological legacy of terror, genocide, and persecution. Karen Baum Gordon is a graduate of Harvard College and Columbia Business School. She co-founded Strategic Horizons Incorporated, an executive coaching and management consulting firm, after she worked as a consultant at McKinsey & Company. She also managed several New York City restaurants and trained as a chef in France and the United Kingdom. Karen now serves on the faculty of the Media Transformation Challenge Program of the Pointer Institute. A Dallas native, Karen lives with her husband and Black Lab in Brooklyn, New York, and also spends time in South Hero, Vermont. She is the proud mother of two sons and an active member of Brooklyn Heights Synagogue, where she recently served as president of the congregation. Karen Baum-Gordon, welcome to the Make Meaning Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me, Lynn. I'm really honored to share with our listeners your journey, your book, lots of experience that you bring to this conversation. And I want to start in a unique place that really came from you when you filled out the guest sheet beforehand, and you said that you believe, and I'm quoting you here, it is healthy to think of ourselves not as human beings, but rather as human becomings. So I've really thought about this question as I was preparing to interview you. And I'm going to ask you a tough one, just right out of the starting gate. So everything's easier from here. But I'm wondering (laughs) how this constant act of becoming is impacted or influenced by the legacies and experiences of those who came before us and, of course, those who raise us. Tell me a little bit about your perspective on, on this connection. When we think of the becoming, it's not just what we're doing at the moment, but it's really about how did we make the choices? What were our values along the way? I really believe this notion of human becoming gets woven into our DNA and into our emotional structure, that whole whatever's been passed down, whatever hasn't been said. Yeah, it's it's interesting and and we don't have to go in this direction but I've read a lot about how, you know, trauma embeds in the DNA and so we can, you know, sort of clear 
ancestral trauma, it can impact us even if we don't realize it, even if it's not stated or we didn't experience the trauma. Something else I've been thinking about that sort of relates to this, I've been working on for a long time now, an essay about names and naming. And, you know, we never name ourselves. It's usually, you know, as Jews, we name in memory of people. It's an honor. It can be a burden. It can be a legacy, but it's never our own. It's always from the generation that created us. And so we're so interwoven with each other's stories and hopes and dreams and fears um, that I do wonder where the individual begins and ends and and where the impact continues. Any thoughts about that? I have thought about that. And a dear friend who really is not well at this time had relayed to me something she's recently learned, which is that there are parts of our ancestors that are passed down literally generation to generation. And whether it's how we treat other people or small things like how we remember, but there are pieces passed down to us that I think we just don't even know that really become our own. Identity is complex. It's just made up of so many parts. And so with all of this as a backdrop, I'd love to hear what inspired you to write your memoir. The truth is I did not set out to write a memoir. (laughs) I didn't set out to write a book. In fact, when I was in high school, I had an 11th grade English teacher who would knock off five points for a misplaced modifier. I basically had writer's block and I got to college. I had three 20 page papers due the same day, first semester. And I was, oh my God, I can't do this. And I learned how to do it. I actually sought some, some writing support. I learned how to quote, get it out, but I never thought I'd write a book. I was actually walking on our block here in Brooklyn one day in October of 2009, and I ran into a neighbor. I knew him, was friendly with him. He graduated from the same college 25 plus years ahead of me. And I knew he was an editor at McGraw-Hill and a nice man. And we stopped and chatted. And I was telling him how I had recently spoken at the high holiday services at our synagogue. And I was about a spiritual journey talk. And I had actually delivered it in the form of a letter written to my grandparents who perished in the Holocaust. And he said, oh, wow, could I read that? And I said, sure. So I gave him a hard copy as I knew he would want. (laughs) And the next time I saw him, he said, you have a book inside of you. And I was like, a book inside of me? Really? Me? No. (laughs) I mean, I've written some journal entries. I've been having some letters professionally translated that I've had thoughts and feelings about. I've even written a little bit here and there, an essay on a topic or two that's emerged from the letters, but a book. And then one thing led to another. And in fact, it became more and more writing. And I would, I would actually drop off that writing in his mail slot and he would line edit it or give me big picture and drop it off in my mail slot. And actually, some years later, he was very private. We got together once a year on his birthday for tea. And I came to learn that he grew up five doors down from Martin Luther King Jr. in Atlanta. His mother used to play bridge with Martin Luther King Jr.'s mother. And he actually helped write some of Martin Luther King's speeches. So that is really the evolution of how I came to this book. Wow. You know, I love this because I teach a lot of writing classes and so many of my students will talk about how, you know, I've always said I wanted to be a writer, but I don't know if I really am. And I'm like, you're here, so you're a writer. And I think so many people feel mistakenly that if they're not writing every day 
or they're not in love with writing, they didn't grow up from like the age of six writing all the time, they can't possibly write something good or beautiful or worth reading. And that's so untrue. So I love that you said you struggled and you needed support and you ended up writing this beautiful book. Does it feel wonderful? Is it like it an accomplishment? Feels- Wonderful. It has been a a number of years in process with lots of research unexpectedly along the way. The more I uncovered, the more questions I had. In (laughs) fact, knowing where to stop was a challenge. So, how many years total from start to publication? 10 years. Oh, wow. 10 years. And a friend said to me way back when in year two or three, you know, this could take 10 years. I said, oh, no, 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 no way. (laughs) But I also work full time. I was doing many things at the same time. That's awesome. So did you find it challenging to confront the secrets of your ancestral past? You know, like, how did it feel to realize the burden your father bore throughout his life? So, you know, I would say there weren't so many secrets as much as there were many, many steps along the way. And I thought mistakenly, it would just be, you know, an interesting fact finding mission. That's what I sort of thought it would evolve to be. But in fact, there were a lot of emotional punches in the gut along the way. For example, so my father passed away in early 2009. And Hmm. um, so sorry. On August, actually, I know the date because again, I was keeping a journal on August 31st of 2009. I received a call from a fellow who is a dear friend of a friend who was German born, lives here and and, uh, was helping to translate some of these letters. And I had had the first one translated some time ago, but I asked him if he would please translate the last letter. You know, I'm the sort of person like, you know, you can't wait to open the present. Like I couldn't (laughs) wait to know what's in the last letter. Yep. So unexpectedly, he called me up and he says, so I want to take you through what this letter says. He didn't send it to me. He literally translated it real time. And I started Mm -hmm. writing it down. I was a puddle of tears by the end of it. I trekked downstairs and my my husband, Bob, and, and youngest son, Adam, were watching the Baltimore Orioles game, and they mm. saw my face. They paused it. I proceeded to read to them my hand-scribbled notes, which I still have from that call, mm-hmm. and they gave me a hug, and uh, I went back upstairs and was just, uh, I all I wanted to do was crawl into bed, so I thought, okay, I'm going to crawl into bed. I grabbed uh, a book that had just arrived a day or two before, The Chronicle of the Woods mm-hmm. Ghetto, which is a diary of the ghetto that my grandparents perished in. Reading paragraph one of the introduction and the editors are explaining how the book works. They happen to pick a day where they talk about the weather, they talk about this. And the last line of the paragraph is what my grandmother did that day. My grandmother, out of all the people. So talk about another emotional punch in the gut that night. I thought the universe is speaking to me. This is amazing. That's really just one example. Wow. You have to be strong to write any book, but I think a book like this requires a different kind of strength and persistence because it can be really uncomfortable and really sad, you know, to confront humanity in this way, right? Exactly. And I came to learn, you know, to this notion of realizing the burden that my father was bearing through his life. You know, I really learned that what he was doing was surviving the surviving. I didn't know it at the time. I never knew that. 
but I really came to understand that in a very, in a very real way. You know, we really want to hear their inspiration. My father was very inspirational when he talked about his past. I don't quite know how he did some of the things he did in his life. Gosh, wow. Well, I was wondering what you were hoping would be the outcome when you started writing this book. And then, of course, I want to know what the actual response has been, too. The truth is, I thought the outcome was really about writing this for my two sons, Matthew and Adam, and for whatever future generations of our family will be. That's what I thought at the outset. Now, I want to inspire other people to find out more. That's what I really want to do. And and to share my father's story and my grandparents' story. And I do want to inspire others People are responding to the weaving of history with the very personal and with the letters from my grandparents, which I've carefully excerpted. That was very hard to do because, frankly, I want to share every word of every letter. So when an editor said to me, you know, you got to trim it here, trim it there, that was the hardest, (laughs) hardest part to let go of. Um, But people have said it's the quotidian details of my grandparents' lives mixed with the actual history that was going on mixed with my own ponderings and wonderings. Um, So folks have said it's a little bit of a page turner, like a mystery, even though, even though we do know how it ends in a funny way, it's a little bit of a, a page turner. So congratulations. Well, thank you. So you say that writing this book impacted your own Jewish identity. I'd love to hear about that. Well, it's interesting. If I go back again to that, spiritual journey talk I delivered way back when, Uh my grandparents used to say, we were Germans first and Jews second. Mm -hmm. And my father's voice was even in the rotunda for a while at the Museum of Jewish Heritage here in New York City Mm. saying those words. Mm. And I remember that. I actually closed my letter back in 2009 to my grandparents that I am here to say I'm in a I'm a Jew first and an American second. I love that. Yeah. But the truth is, Lynn, actually, after all these years, now I think I am really a mix. It's so interesting. There's a mm. woman who I met on my journey who really became part of our family. She's a survivor of the Woods ghetto, and we traveled back to the ghetto. She just passed away earlier this year, but she became mm. part of our family over the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. And I asked her that question in our first meeting. And she was incensed. She was Polish. She was American. She was Jewish. She said to me, well, such a question. I don't like such a question. I'm everything. Why, why would I answer in such a way what I'm first? And I thought, wow, I still work with that. Somebody said to me the other day, who's read the book, he said, you know, we're made to be Jews first by the world, the world's definition of us to be Jews first, which I thought was so interesting. And again, just gave me another piece to turn over as I consider this question. Really interesting. Yeah. I mean, I'm always concerned about rising anti-Semitism, although my whole life it's always been there, just at different times, it's come up more or less in different places. And that is a fascinating way to look at it is, you know, that what the world sees of us versus how we define ourselves. You know, we're not homogenous. We're, we're all individual. And the, even the way we approach Judaism, even if it's the same denomination, can be very different. And that is very interesting to contemplate how the world defines us versus how we define ourselves, which we could extrapolate for pretty much any marginalized or persecuted population as well. For sure. 
So in the book, you talk about some essential concepts, um, which I'm going to name, and then I'd love for you to sort of help our listeners understand a little bit. Surviving the surviving is one that you mentioned. You also talked about intergenerational trauma, which we hinted at, but I wanted to spend a little more time on. And then, of course, questions of identity. So I wonder if you could sort of enlighten our audience to each of these concepts. Well, the surviving the surviving, you know, we really want survivors, which are so a dwindling few now. But through the years, when we hear them speak, we don't want to hear about desperation. We want to hear their inspiration. And there's a sense of, hey, you know what? They had it tough. It was really hard. They made it through. And then they made a life for themselves how great, look at what they did. They had a family, they did fine, great. But we really don't think about what that was for them. And I, again, if I think about my dad, I think about, uh, like, how did he live with the the words that were in that last letter? Like for a lifetime, how did he survive seeing what he saw? Or how did he survive even, he went back to Germany a number of times. How did he do that? How did he walk those streets and see the people and wonder about where they were? So that's what I mean by the surviving the surviving. Yeah. On the intergenerational trauma, we spoke a little bit about that already. I yeah. I really do believe it's there. Part of my goal in writing this book was also to dilute a little bit for my own family to play a role in sort of breaking the thread that can be so strong of that trauma by giving voice to it, by putting it out there, so to speak. So I really do hope that's a part for my own family that occurs. Well, some, you know, I've worked with organizations in my marketing business that serve survivors and their families and the concept of the second generation, the two Gs, you know, the children of survivors So many talk about how their parents never discussed it, but there were certain behaviors or certain things they experienced because of their parents' traumas and experiences, which can't help but influence and impact them, even if you can't put a word to it or you can't articulate what's going on. So much so. In fact, when I was in college, I ended up in a group with the woman who I mentioned who helped me through my writing. She pulled together a group of us who were all first generation. And here we had landed at Harvard. All of us to a person had such similar feelings about being there. And I would say some burdens, you know, the sense of responsibility of we had to do well, we had to make it. In fact, I just reconnected with someone in that group and it's really played out for a lifetime, that sense of responsibility. And in some of our homes, it was very outspoken Mm -hmm. and in others, there wasn't so much voice given to it. Yeah. So then it lurks or lingers and you can't put your finger on what it is, but it's impacting you. For better or for worse. It's that long shadow of the Holocaust. Yeah. Yeah. And then the the questions of identity, and we've we've skirted around this a little bit already. I'm fascinated by concepts of identity. And you talked about, you know, Jewish first, American first, or or a combination of all different things. I think identity is really complex. And I wonder, being identified as a Holocaust survivor, is it a blessing and a curse? Is it a is it a burden? And how do those questions of identity then convey to future generations? And how did that work in your family? I think there is a a sense of responsibility to remember. 
maybe even if it's not giving voice to, whether it's keeping traditions or whether it is casual conversations, relaying it to the next generation. But I think it's so critical to our identities. If we don't remember, I, I think it would really dilute our identities in yeah. ways that we're not even aware what the implications would be. Yeah. It's complex. It's not an easy answer. And in my writing classes, I do a, a signature class called Finding Your Voice at Midlife. And I, I mean, I get mm. people from age 30 to 80, which I love, but I start by talking about origin stories and how we never stop to consider that our story doesn't begin with us. It begins in the middle of two other stories or many other stories. And so when you stop and revisit that, how does that change the telling of your story? Because we all think of our own origins and, and this is my time to build a life and make impact and, and be me but we're all part of this complex web of stories and legacies and identities. So it's a fun exercise. A lot of people don't. Oh, that's great. Yeah. It gives a lot of fodder for writing. So <laughs> that's for sure. That is such a great, but that is so right at the heart of what we're talking about. Yeah. It's right there. I love that. Oh, we could go on for days about that, but yes. we won't. We won't. We won't. You know, I'm curious about how you served as president for your very large synagogue and led it through some changes. And so from that lens, I would love to hear what you see as the state of American Jewish identity and affiliation today, and then what you're hoping it'll look like in the future. So that was an amazing, amazing role. And uh -huh. I thoroughly enjoyed it. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And uh -huh. I really enjoyed it because it was about building community, yeah. Jewish community. I It gave me great gratification and I would hope that those who seek meaning in, in being Jewish in community, that they do it, that they have an outlet for that. I think it's mm -hmm. part of, again, honoring the past and traditions, but also to some degree, it's bolstering that sort of solidity of our identity and, and the ability to carry it on to future generations. But when you talk about the future, I got this from actually Rabbi Rick Jacobs, uh, head of the URJ, uh, at a very large meeting. And, uh -huh. and he gave the message that it's more about how do we as Jews have other people who are not Jewish fall in love with, with what the Jewish religion is and its sense of values. And that I found so meaningful and so inspiring. And what a great way to think about how to move forward. Yeah. It's interesting. I'm um, I'm on the board of my synagogue here in Detroit, and I've volunteered to develop a marketing plan because I mm. work in marketing as my day job. And I just, as a board member, I was so curious about, you know, what do we do to put the synagogue out there, and how do we, how do we talk about the synagogue, and how do we attract people who might want to be involved, and what's what's the goal? You know, it's these are questions that you might apply to a business, but that I think are really relevant in community building and. And so I'm really excited about that, but I know part of that's going to be digging into some market research about synagogue affiliation and membership and trends in America. And so um, I may call you and pick your brain at some point. <laughs> Definitely. And I would say, Lynn, you know, I think you're so on the right track to think about as you embark on this, what does success look like for this? Is it sheer number of members that you grow by? Is it how engaged people are today? You know, there's many ways to think about that, but. Yeah. How your values and I guess ideals uh, ripple out into the greater community too. You know, can totally. that be success? If it's exactly, not, you know, if it's not translating to an actual membership, but it's it's in, impacting and reaching so many people, isn't that successful too? You know, totally, exactly. Oh, I love that. Oh, we <laughs> could talk about that. I 
Right okay. on. Yes. I'm keeping your number handy. <laughs> Absolutely. Okay. Absolutely. Well, Karen, as we conclude our interview, I, I usually end by asking my guests to talk a little bit about what advice they might offer our listeners about finding meaning and purpose, whether it's in work or in life. And, you know, based on your experience writing this book and all of your experiences, I wonder if there are any um, any last words you'd like to impart to our listeners today. I'd like to say that my journey was really about ordinary people helping an ordinary person like me. And I would say to folks who are listening, go call your Aunt Millie or your Uncle Harry now before you do anything else. Do it today. Do it tonight. They're not going to be around as long as you want them to be. And talk to them. Find out. Let them even have a, a space to talk about their own pain if that's a part of the story. But find it out. Now's the time. And frankly, if they're already gone, you can still do the work. You can still find out what preceded you and what the stories are. In today's world with technology, what it is with the internet and and with all that we have, it's there. It's at your fingertips. So I would urge folks in terms of finding meaning and purpose, go find out now. Yeah, It's worth it. Absolutely. Well, great. Karen Baumgordon, thank you so much for being a guest on the Make Meaning Podcast. Thank you so much, Lynn. What a pleasure. Thanks for listening to the Make Meaning Podcast with Lynn Galadner. You can find us wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. If you like what you've heard here, join us over at makemeaning.org to discover how you can add more meaning to your life. And hey, if you like our conversations, please subscribe and share this episode with the meaningful people in your world.